Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, which includes us then, doesn't it? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? And we're going to dig into a prep on this. Lord, thank you so much for the blessing and privilege tonight of being able to seek your face. Thank you for the blessing of knowing your word is active and alive and able to speak to every one of us, regardless of whether we are Bible scholars, Bible scholars or whether we've never cracked open this book before in our lives. And I pray today, Lord, that we would truly know you. That tonight, Lord, you would draw every one of us into a deeper and more meaningful and true relationship with you. That nothing would interfere, Lord. Nothing at all. And that tonight, Lord, you would profoundly speak now. Lord, overcome every language barrier, every culture barrier, Overcome everything, Lord, that tonight we would find ourselves nestling into you and truly, maybe even for the first time, realize your infinite and beautiful love for us. And Lord, in that, please tonight, let every one of us walk out of here knowing you and knowing you well and knowing who we are in you. In Jesus' name, fill me now with your Holy Spirit and do through me what I cannot humanly do. May we truly be drawn in and enrapted by your word today. And may we have so much fun as we open your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be the authority from which you test all things. What I want to do to build us up into this book to give you some understanding. If you have no understanding of Scripture, we're looking at letters. An epistle is simply a letter. Epistalas, epi means upon, stello means sent. So it was sent upon someone. Now, this is a letter from an individual that we see here named Paul and another named Sosthenes to a group of people in an area called Corinth. Thinking. Surely you're the deal. The area that we are looking at in Corinth, we're going to give a little bit of understanding here in a moment, but the best way to understand it is to look first at the historical book of Acts to get a reference for where this is and why this man would be writing to these people and what's his experience with them and who they are. So let me take you back for a moment and we'll work our way into chapter 18. Here's my little bit of review working up to it. In 49 AD, roughly, a man who was a former Christian killer, he worked for a group of people that were convinced that the Christianity as we understand it, at that point called the way, was a cult. And he felt that the most honorable and noble thing he could do was to kill and arrest every individual who called themselves part of this group. If you were at that point believing on Jesus, you would have been, if caught, arrested and executed. But you were always given a way out. They would always say, deny that Jesus, this Jewish man, 
literally died and rose again, deny that he's God. And thousands upon thousands of people refused to go back on that, even upon torture or death or arrest. To this day, we still see that. For instance, our friend Saeed in Iran, be in prayer. His family's just been able to visit him for the first time in this horrible prison that he's at, simply for his faith. And this man having met Jesus en route, by the way, up in the area even today of Syria, encounters the living Jesus that had been executed over a year ago. And when he meets this Jesus, he asks two imperative questions. One, who are you? And the second, what do you want me to do? That's really everything. Jesus, who are you really? Not who I've made you up to be. Who are you really? And what do you want me to do? This man at that point called Saul, or Shual, which means sought after, will find himself trying out his new Christianity, the thing he very much tried to destroy, with his old methodology of arguing. It doesn't work out very well, and he flees to where he came from, an area called Tarshish, which is the, nor- the southwest, I'm sorry, the southeast corner of Turkey. That's where Paul was from. He was a Jew from Turkey. He will be there for roughly eight years and then fished out by a man named Barnabas because of a brand new church that's starting in Syria in the area of Antioch. And he will pastor there for a year before going out on what we would call missionary journeys. Paul spends the rest of his life planting churches one manner or another. So the man we're actually looking at here is a man who was a church planner, (coughs) a man who had given his entire life over to Christ And from the moment that God said go, he went, not even necessarily knowing where he was going. By the second trip he takes, that's now 49 AD, he has with him an apprentice and assistant. The assistant's name is Silas. He was somebody that was a transplant from Jerusalem. And as he travels through the area of Lystra and Derbe, and you can flash up if you would, Lauren, a map just to give us a little bit of an understanding of this. Most of what we'll be doing today will be from the book of Acts. So you can turn there if you want. Get to chapter 18 and 19 so you're ready when that time comes. That will help you. I want you to succeed. If I go a little slow today, that might be to your benefit. Yeah. Okay. Oh, any one of those is good. Um, Okay, go back to that first one, Lauren. Actually, that one. See, this is the area of Turkey today. This is what it looks like. The, the church that was started was roughly about right here. Paul lives about right there. Follow me on that? Paul is fished out. He goes here. And once he goes here, spends a year pastoring a church that just started here. And once he starts pastoring this church, he starts heading out on these journeys as the Holy Spirit sets him apart for a brand new work now that this guy's going to go on tour to preach Jesus where no one's heard of him, which, by the way, was an awful lot of places. So go ahead and flip to another slide if you would. Lauren, okay, and go ahead and one more, I think. There we go. Okay, so here was that area. Again, this is Turkey, as we knew it. The western part of it was called Asia Minor, by the way. This, by the way, is Greece, and this is Italy, to give you an idea. Paul will, by his first journey, by the way, head over to the area of Cyprus, head up to the southern coast, and then, oh, sorry, Cyprus, head up to the southern coast of Turkey, and then head back. By the second trip, by the way, he will make his way around, and while he's in this area here, do you see where it says Lystra and Derby? Do you see that? If you can read that well. 
That is where then he picks up a young boy named Timothy. Timothy is a mixed race person, by the way. So don't tell me God doesn't love or use mixed race because that's just ridiculous, but just the same. Um, he is, in this case, he is the greatest mixed race of the day because his father was Greek, but his mother was Jewish. So not only were they of different sort of nationalities, but they were also of very different religions. And so as a result of that, Paul takes this kid, roughly more than likely in his teens, circumcises him and then sends him on his way with him. And this is what Paul does. He heads up here. And what Paul wants to do, he's just picked up this new kid. And imagine, here you are, this is the school of ministry. And what Paul tries to do is he tries to go due north to where we would say is Istanbul today. He is prevented by the Holy Spirit from doing so. We don't even know how. Then he tries to go due west to the area of Ephesus, but he again is prevented from doing so. And what would it be like to be Timothy you just joined this guy. He just circumcised you for goodness sakes. I mean, that guy's got to be pretty serious. And then it's like everywhere he goes, he doesn't know where he's going. He's like, imagine, he tries to go someplace. He's like, well, God said no. Then he tries to go somewhere. He's like, don't you think you should have checked with God before you started? And then we read in the middle of the night, a Macedonian man appears to him. God knows how to speak Paul's language. And what we read is this man pleads with him. In other words, he begs. Now, a Macedonian man is, by the way, from Europe. Up to this point, Paul has been in the Middle East. All of this is still considered the Middle East from Turkey over. So Israel's down here. Then over here, of course, is Iraq. And this is Iran, to give you an idea. So with that in mind, he gets this vision. And this is what's going to take Paul into Europe, by the way. If it weren't for this, by the way, we might not have had... Well, we certainly wouldn't have this letter or the two that we're about to read. So Paul then... We read then, and I love this. Listen to this closely. So it says then, when they've gone through, and they've, they try to get through all of these places, they wind up in Troas. And it says then in chapter 16, verse 10, or 17, verse 10, 16, verse 10, sorry. It says, now after he had seen this vision, which happened in the middle of the night, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to him. Now imagine, here's a guy that tries going someplace and says no. Tries going somewhere else, God says no. Gets a vision in the middle of the night. And then he wakes us up and he says, we're going. And you'd think, are you sure? Because I really don't want to wake up in the middle of the night and have you say, oops, one more time. That's just worse. But what I love about Paul is that the two things that were not, the one thing that was not a variable was what he was going to do. The when and the where, that was still in flux. That part wasn't clear, but the great thing was he was sure of what he was called to do. And it says, concluding, that we had been called to preach the gospel there. In other words, he tried to preach the gospel up in Istanbul, didn't work. Tried, didn't, wasn't allowed. Tried to go into Ephesus, wasn't allowed to preach the gospel. Goes to Troas, gets a vision, and says, well, then we'll just preach the gospel in Europe. My question to you is, as God calls you to action, is the variable what you're called to do? Or is the variable just when and where? Because if you realize what God's called you to do, then you're always on call. Even in the middle of the night. And so he wakes up these guys, including young Timothy, and says, let's go. So Paul will then head up. And he heads up. Now the area, we'll go back to that map for just one second, if you would, Lauren. Thank you. Try that again. And 
It's, this is, by the way, Macedonia at night, 2,000 years ago. As you can see, it's, it's really very dark because there aren't the lights we have today. Um, this area here is Macedonia. Now, there are three major cities that Paul's going to visit up here that you're going to want to know about. The first of them is Philippi, and that's up right here. And then the second then is going to be the, <clears throat> the area of Thessalonica, or to this day, Thessaloniki. And then just 10 miles southwest of it is the area of Berea, all considered Macedonia. And by the way, even though all of this is considered other person's territory, this is still considered Greece today, those little areas. Now, Philippi was a garrison, and what that means is it was a place where soldiers go to retire. Very strong patriotism. You can imagine when Paul writes and Paul always uses these things when he writes to the Philippians, he says, for instance, our citizenship is in heaven. You kind of get the idea to the Philippians. That makes a lot of sense. It was there, by the way, if you remember that a slave girl that was possessed gets exercised. And I don't mean she does Zumba. That means the the demons cast out of her. Then maybe she did Zumba. But um, and the owners, because she was a slave girl, get all bent out of shape because now she's not worth anything because she's not possessed. How sad would that be? But if you've gotten saved and you came from a pretty ra- a rotten, ragged world before, you understand that. People get really upset once you actually like stop sleeping with everyone and stop doing drugs and all the other things or stop beating up people. I mean, people are like, you know, it's amazing because I get calls from parents. Let's say, you know, um, you know, like we used to, you know, I used to be able to smoke marijuana with my son, and now he's preaching this Jesus to me. What did you do to him? You brainwashed him. I'm like, I brainwashed him? Anyways, I'm like, you, were, you liked him better when he was running from the law? All right, well, with that, Paul then here will get arrested as a result of that, and that's where God does the first jailhouse rock. Rocks the, the, the prison down to its foundation, and he is released. <clears throat> so when he comes out of this place, he comes out of this place beat up, He comes out of this place with a parade because they realize he's a Roman citizen and you can't imprison and beat a guy without a trial if he's Roman. And so from there, he heads over to Thessalonica. And if you thought things were bad in Philippi, Thessalonica made it look like a summer camp because Thessalonica, the people just hate him. They hate him so much. Like what Paul's doing is like he's developing what we might call an anti-fan base. Everywhere he goes, people don't just dislike him, they hate him. So much so that when Paul flees for his life out of Thessalonica to this town of Berea, 10 miles away, that's the distance basically between here and Hibarnet, to give you an idea. He's like all the way out there that the people from Thessalonica actually go all the way over here to try to kill him. They chase him. And I remind you, this is when there are no cars or trains. These people go on a horse or they they walk. They're going to walk 10 miles just to try to kill this guy because they hate him so much. Remember, Remember how Paul is with these two guys, Silas and Timothy? So what Paul does, because in every place he's left a church planted, but this little town of Berea, well, this one's a little bit different. Because he fled so quick, he realized he left before people had a a chance to get really founded in the Word. So what he does is he leaves two guys there, Silas and Timothy, and he heads down to Athens. Now, he is now in another world in comparison. Now he's in a place where everybody thinks they're really, really smart. Now he's in a place where everybody's like super into talking philosophy. And by the way, for what it's worth, and if this offends you, check it out for yourself. But this is God's definition of philosophy as he speaks about the people there. It says, now the people of Athens did nothing but talk about the latest thing. That's philosophy in its best. You do nothing, you just talk about the latest thing. 
You don't find, it isn't like, this hospital was built by the philosophers of London. Or, you know, this orphanage was built by the philosophing, you know, the philosopher benevolent fund from Africa. People, you know, that philosophize, they just talk so much they don't do anything. And Paul, by the way, being a Mr. Smarty Pants, if you will, likes, doesn't have a problem arguing and talking smart. Now, can I warn you here? One of the things Paul's going to address to the Corinthians is that they are so caught up in trying to look smart, they've walked away from the truth of God to do so. God made very simple tools, and people will laugh at those tools. But if you're good at those tools, people will respect it sooner or later when they see that, it's, that it works. I had a friend who owned a recording studio, but he never really learned how to use any of his instruments. So what would happen is if he thought something, he couldn't do it well, he just bought a new thing. So now he had l- more stuff he didn't know how to use. And then you saw some guy strip it down to like four basic items from the 60 that he had. And he took those four items and he made something beautiful out of it. And then you go, wow, I actually respect those first four. At that point, the guy realized, wow, I should probably learn how to use these. I mean, I think a lot of Christians, we're busy trying to find the new thing to add on. But we don't even know the operating system of the gospel yet to really use it. We're still busy trying to decorate it with the new app. Well, with that in mind, if you'll pardon me. So what happens is Paul goes down to Athens. He actually gives that a try. See, up to this point, Paul has been very simple about the gospel, and with that, it's had profound results. People get saved or people want to kill him. I mean, it's pretty clear who's who, right? There's like very little common ground. You know, it isn't like, well, people kind of, they kind of, there's no kind of. They either really loved me and they loved Jesus or they tried to kill me, and you think you know who's who. Now, <clears throat> but when he gets to Athens, that changes because he kind of now doesn't really, he kind of really sugarcoats the gospel now, and he spends a lot of time playing philosophy games with them. And what happens as a result of that is his response is as impotent as his message. A few people respond. Some people kind of mock. Others are like, well, maybe we'll hear about you later. And you think, well, wow, that was great success. Check it out. Nobody wanted to kill me in Athens. But no one really, nothing really happened there either. Now hear me. That is the story of a million ministries And that is the story of at least 20 that we could tell you firsthand that we've experienced here in London. The story of people that had the very best intentions when they started. You ever go to something and you hear they go, I heard this was started by Christians. Like started by Christians. The fact someone has to tell you that tells you that it must not be operating today in a way that someone had to tell you that that it used to be. Does that make sense? But we got government funding, and then we had to stop with the Jesus thing or whatever it was. And now all of a sudden, and you hear that so many times, it makes me want to vomit. You get so tired of hearing about how people stop bringing Jesus into things because now they just look like nice people. Welcome to Athens for your tepid response. Nobody wants to kill you anymore. But see, for those people, that was like a stripe or a badge. That was a medal. Now, you didn't go to try to get fired. You didn't go so the girl would break up with you. But you fell in love with Jesus, and when people bailed on you as a result of that, and you followed him wholeheartedly, it was an honest strike. It wasn't just something that you bought down in Camden and then sewed onto your jacket to pretend like you were a sergeant somewhere. And when this happens now, Paul is down in Athens, and something must have happened there, because the next place he goes to is Corinth. Now, it's interesting, because what Paul will say to the Corinthians is, you know that when I came to you, I resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and in him crucified. 
In other words, and the crazy thing is people actually want to build their whole ministry around what Paul did in Athens, and yet what Paul did, we forget that Paul's learning like everyone else. We just have the privilege of watching a guy grow in his ministry on paper. Does that make sense? It isn't like God recorded the guy because everything he did was perfect. Paul himself would tell you he's made mistakes. When Paul got to Corinth, he was like, hmm, note to self, let's go with what works, the gospel. Let's stop playing these kind of philosophy games of looking really smart and trying to just play. Let's, you know, it's like, like I guarantee you what Paul might have done in um, what Paul might have done in Athens, he might have done a 65-week series on finding Jesus in the Iron Man series, or finding Jesus in the Hobbit, or you know. And, and let's and while we're at it, let's see if we could find Jesus in you know the, the new Melly Cyrus song, or finding Jesus in. I mean, that's, we'll go with that route for a while. But the problem is, by the time you're done, you still hadn't found him, but you're sure knew Melly Cyrus a little bit better. And you know the, the problem with that is. The gospel becomes, at best, a little side dish, but you're so full from the main meal, you barely want to eat it. And Paul is like, look at you know that when I, finally, when I finally showed up to you guys, I said, I'm done with that. Let's go straight with the gospel. And what's interesting is nowhere from that point on will you find Paul do that, which tells me that even in his actions, he didn't go back to repeating that. You'll say, oh, well, we need to quote, quote today's poems, poets and blah, blah, blah. It's like, hey, you know what? Good on you if you're that kind of person. But can I just say, first and foremost, make sure the gospel's central. <clears throat> because you can candy coat nothing and people will think it tastes really good. Well, <clears throat> the gospel is a jagged pill. There's the problem. So hear me on this. <clears throat> Excuse me. So by the time now that Paul has made his way, and that's chapter 18, verse 1. After that, after leaving Athens, Paul then departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Now, by this point, Paul is still beat up, but he's nursing his wounds. And he's beat up from all those places in Macedonia. And Athens now, he's probably beating himself up for what happened there. Let me tell you a little bit about Corinth for a moment. And then we'll read into our text of what takes place. What did Paul step into? In 146 B.C., by the way, they revolted against Rome and the city was destroyed. But by 27 B.C., Julius Caesar would rebuild it and make it the capital of Achaia, which is today Greece. Corinth, by the way, according to Greek mythology, and let me make this clear, this is a fairy tale, but the Greeks believed it, had been started by a guy named King Sisyphus. Like Sisyphus. Could you say Sisyphus? And there is a picture, by the way. It's the one of him pushing something. Could you find that, Jenny? And here is the story, basically, of the fairy tale of this man, King Sisyphus. Good. Very well done. King Sisyphus was so heady, he challenged the gods. And his punishment from that point on was to push a giant stone, a boulder, uphill for eternity. Now that's, let's be honest, that's pretty rough punishment. But this was the general attitude of the people in Corinth. They believed that what life was, was pushing a boulder uphill. As a result of that, the only thing left to do was to drop the boulder and get to the bottom of the hill and just dive into all kinds of sensual pleasure any way you could. They were proud to be bottom dwellers. 
And that was the idea of Corinth. Now to this day, by the way, you'll meet people like that here in London, that they believe that everything about life is just one big struggle, one big futile, empty struggle, like they're pushing a boulder uphill, and they get to the point where it's like, why even try? Let's just live at the bottom. Well, by this time, understand that even the poets of the day knew of Corinth. It had quite a reputation. Homer, in Homer's Iliad, and by the way, after I say about quoting poets, here we go. In Iliad's chapter 2, by the way, it says that a Corinthian, he uses the term, speaks of a person who was wealthy and immoral. Lots of money, but no standards. Plato, by the way, when he writes his Republic on page 404, calls a Corinthian girl... That's the synonymous with a prostitute. To Philisteros, by the way, who's an author and a playwright, <clears throat> he writes in his letter, in his book of Thenis, Thenis, he uses the term holkrentastis. What, by the way, holkrentastis means the lecher or the person that's just stealing and no morals. For Aristophanes, by the way, he coined the term krentinsiomai, or krentinsiomai, and the term means a person, that means fornication is what it means. For Strabo, by the way, historian, he would say that if a person showed up in this place, he was greeted by a thousand temple prostitutes of Aphrodites who were always on at any given time. Now, I'm granted, I'm sure they worked in shifts, but that was the idea. So the common expression, like we would say in Vegas, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. The expression for Corinth was, not a trip to Corinth was for every man. Most men were not strong enough to approach that. So let me ask you something. And this is one of those moments where I'd love your, your take on it. What would be such a place that's synonymous with sin today in Europe? What would it be? You tell me. Is it still Amsterdam? You kind of say, so it would be the kind of place, let's just say that if, let's just say that Daniel, and I'll pick on Daniel because he's a very, very pure young man. But imagine if Daniel said, so I just decided to take a trip by myself to Amsterdam. Would you kind of go, oh, really? Or, you know, or all of a sudden Alex is like, you know what? I decided to go by myself with no accountability and I went to Phuket or Bangkok. And you go, really? And you kind of get the idea. Someone's like, yeah, I set up a shop. You know, I actually ran a business in Bangkok. And you go, oh, Really? The reason I say that is, let's bring it into contemporary era here. That was the reputation Corinth had. It was kind of like Vegas and Amsterdam with a hint of San Francisco. That makes any sense. So when people say, for instance, oh, God didn't write, this stuff is inappropriate for today. If they knew our culture, oh, your culture is nothing new. Amsterdam's culture is nothing new. The only difference is that I'm fairly confident that they didn't have a clean needle program back 2,000 years ago. But the idea is still the same. So are you with me now, at least on what this kind of idea is? So imagine Paul, by the way, and I want to remind you, Paul heads into this place kind of alone. He's waiting for his boys to catch up with him. Remember how they're still up in Macedonia helping plant that church in Berea? So this is what we read, and read along with me in Acts 18, verse 1. So after these things, Paul departed from Athens, and he went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Some of you are familiar with these guys because it's, you never read one without the other. I love these guys. They're mentioned six times in Scripture. 
Half the time he's mentioned first, half the time, ladies, she's mentioned first, for what it's worth. They'd been kicked out of Rome, because actually Claudius kicked out all the Jewish people, which includes them. And he commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them, verse 3. But because they were of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. So when Paul shows up in Corinth, guess what the first thing he does? He gets a job. Now I remind you, Paul doesn't have his traveling buddies with him. But I think this is really cool because what Paul did is he met a couple and he made himself accountable right away. Hey, you're aware of the fact the easiest way to sin is to pull yourself from accountability. That's why the internet has such strong pull on people. It has very little accountability. That's why we demand every person who in any way works with us to get part, to become part of X3 Watch, which just is a way of holding you accountable to what you do on the internet. On your phone, on your iPad. On, that stuff's just so important. So it says then, and he reasoned in the synagogue uh, every Sabbath, every Shabbat, every Saturday, and he persuaded both Jews and Greeks Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, remember how they were there planting the church in Berea? Paul was compelled by the Spirit, and he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But they opposed him and blasphemed, and he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles, which was the ministry God had sent Paul to. And he departed from there, and he entered the house of a certain man named Justice, who worshipped God, whose house was next to door to the synagogue. And I love this. Okay. Don't miss this because this is so fun. Give you an idea how far, how far Paul works. Paul's in the synagogue and he's preaching Jesus. You need to give your life to Jesus. And they're like, get out of here. You're blaspheming. And he's like, fine. I'm, I'm okay. I'll go to the Gentiles. Bye. You need Jesus. He goes next door. He doesn't even like walk down the block. This is like one door, next one. Hello, that's Paul. And this becomes the church. The church gets set up next door to the synagogue. How fun is that? Do you think the synagogue is going to like that one? Probably not. Now, do me a favor, would you, for a moment? Because I'm going to give you something to try to test you as we move on in this. Write down a few names, because I want to see if you know who these people are by the time we're done, okay? The first is a guy named Justice. Write down the name Justice. Come on, this will make you look really good and smart in church. Justice, as we see here, was the guy who lived next door to the synagogue. Do you get that? And it says he worshiped God. Here's the next, and I'm just going to give you the names, and then as we get into it, you'll see them. The next one is Crispus, who obviously learned, accidentally dropped some potato slices into some boiling oil. Sorry. Yeah, okay. Didn't know that's how it happened, did you? All right. Then the next one is Sosthenes. S-O-S-T-H-E-N-E-S. Sosthenes. And then the name Apollos. That's all your names that you need. So here are my names again. Justice, Crispus, Sosthenes, and Apollos. Are you with me so far? Okay. Now, who's Justice? Excellent. The guy who lived next door to the synagogue, what we read is he worshiped God. That's where the church goes. Are you with me so far? Okay. Now, <clears throat> verse 8. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, 
believed on the Lord. So who is Crispus? The ruler of the synagogue. But what we learn about him? He believed on the Lord. Okay, now, think about how rough this must be now. Remember how Paul was, Paul, Paul was in the synagogue preaching, and they're like, no, 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 go away, we hate you. So he goes over here, he preaches the gospel to, who is this guy again? Justice. And justice gives his life to Christ. This becomes the church. And then who gets saved from over here? Crispus, the leader of the synagogue. Can you see how fun this is getting? Now imagine Paul's influence already. Now, can you see this being different from Athens? I mean, in Athens, Paul's like, let's just talk smart. Smart, smart, smart. Poetry, poetry, poetry. Smart, smart, smart. And everyone's like, oh, well, that was lovely. I think we should just think about that some more. Okay, great. All right, let's go. And then, and then he goes to this place. And he's like, you need Jesus. And they're like, shut up, leave. Okay, you need Jesus. Okay, good. And then the guy goes, can I join Jesus too? Yeah, that's what's happening here. But could you imagine how things get a little rough here now? That the, now, remember, the ruler of the synagogue, that's the guy who picks who speaks. That's the guy who gets to bring out the Torah scroll. This guy's kind of an important guy. And what's his name again? Crispus. All right, well, who is this guy again? Justice. That's right, Justice Crispus. Now listen, so it says this. Now, he says, in many other Corinthians, and it says, it says he believed on the Lord with all his household, which means not only did Crispus get saved, his whole Crispus family got saved. Little Crispus, Crispus Jr., Crispy, Crispina, Shakrina Crispa, you know, whatever it is, Crispica, um, all got saved. Whole family. Now, that's a pretty influential family in the church, don't you think? In the synagogue. And it says, and many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, and were baptized. I get the idea at this point. This has become bigger than this. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, kind of getting exciting already. It's at that point, listen to what God says in verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul at night in a vision. The last time that happened, that was a Macedonian man. You kind of got that, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to do? And this is what God said. Don't be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent. Now, don't miss this. What state was Paul in at this moment? He was afraid. God doesn't tell you to stop being afraid unless you're afraid. Does that make sense? Now, here's the crazy thing. From the eyes of a person like us, we would go, look at how successful the church is. But the more successful, so to speak, the church is becoming, the more afraid Paul is getting. But can I say... Look at what God said in the midst of this. It was your fear that caused Paul to be silent. And Paul knew it. God says, look at Paul. Stop being afraid. It's your fear that's making you silent. Do you get that? God knows that in you too. He knows what keeps you silent from being a Paul or a Pauline is that you're afraid. But by the way, when God answers that, he always answers it with the same thing. God doesn't ever try to make you feel better by the circumstance. And that's what we might do when we try to comfort someone. Don't be afraid. They're not that close. Don't be afraid. They won't really get to you. Don't be afraid. They got arrested. Don't be afraid. It won't be that bad. Don't be afraid. You know, God's answer is always the same. He doesn't try to make the circumstance less because if he tries to make the circumstance less, the next circumstance that comes up, you'll be afraid again. Does that make sense? The bills are due when you're afraid. And you go, don't worry, it'll, don't worry. Maybe it won't be that big of a bill. 
And then the bill is, and you're like, ah. And then the next bill is going to come next month, and you're going to be afraid again. This is God's answer always. Listen, please hear me on this with your heart. Verse 10, he says, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent because I'm with you. Do you know why we shouldn't be afraid? Because he's with us. No matter what circumstance happens, that doesn't change. So the relationship's rough. So things aren't the way you thought they would be, and now it's scary. So the, the challenges are bigger than my resources? God says, no, they're not. I'm with you. But the enemy seems so big, and he seems bigger than you. Yeah, but I'm with you. But the world seems like it has so much momentum. God's like, yeah, but I'm with you. And that changes everything. He'll say that in Genesis 26 and 28, Isaiah 41 and 43, Jeremiah 1, 15, 30, 42 and 46, Haggai 1 and 2, and Matthew 28 when he sends us out. And by the way, notice he knows even there we'll be tempted to be silent. And he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And listen, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. You're not going to lose me. No matter where you go, you're not going to lose me. I'm not leaving. No matter what you do, I'm not leaving. Even when you do something really, really stupid, I'm still with you. Paul would say, what, do you want to unite Christ to a prostitute? In other words, if you want to go and hire, try to hire love, which clearly isn't love at all, Jesus doesn't wait in the bus. He goes with you wherever you go. You're, he's not leaving. And he goes, so why are you so freaked out? It's Zephaniah 3.17. We're right in the middle. God says, and he quiets you with his love. Well, with that in mind, get the idea where Paul's at. He's like, Paul, you're freaking out? And he says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. And then he says, and no one's going to attack you or hurt you because I have many people in this city. And you don't even know who that is yet. So we continued there for a year and six months. Do you see that in verse 11, beloved? He continued there for a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. In other words, the church of Corinth was planted by who? Paul. And how long was he there? A year and a half. Paul was there for a year and a half planting this church. Are you with me so far? A year and a half later, it says, look at verse 12. Now when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, that's Greece, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul. Now where do you think they came from? I think they came from over there. Yeah, for they came from next door. Exactly. And it says, They rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. Now, by the way, Gallio became proconsul in the summer of 51 AD, for what it's worth. And they said, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Remember what God said? God said, Don't worry, I've got people in high places. Everything's cool. But number one, first and foremost, don't worry, I'm with you. And so now all of a sudden they bring him to the leader of the area, the governor of the area. His name is Gallio, who's known, by the way, of being a very nasty man. And these Jews come in and they say, look at this guy, he's a problem. He does things contrary to the law. And before Paul could even answer, I bet he didn't write the script this way. The man says to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But if this is a question of words, names, and your own law, look to it yourself. I don't want to judge such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. I bet Paul didn't expect that. The guy's like, what? This is a religious matter. Haven't you heard of the separation of church and state? 
get out of here. I don't want to have anything to do with this. But look at verse 17. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Now, wait a minute. Who was the synagogue ruler before? Crispus. Do you remember that? Well, they say, well, maybe he changed his name. I doubt it. I kind of get the idea that what happened is when Crispus got saved, he got fired. Wouldn't you think? And so they hired a new guy. And what's the new guy's name? Sosthenes. So there's our number three guy. Do you get that? Okay, so let me just, let's just review, because we're almost done here. The first person we had to deal with was the original synagogue ruler. And what was his name? Justice, right? It's Crispus. Crispus, thank you. Crispus. Crispus was a synagogue ruler. But what happened to him? He got saved. His family got saved. And it looked like he got fired. You with me? And then Paul went next door. What was that guy's name? Justice. Justice. And that guy is where the church is, next door to the synagogue. You with me? Now we got a new synagogue ruler. And what's his name? Sosthenes. Now get the idea. This guy seems like the guy that's leading the crew to try to arrest Paul, right? And what do they do? They beat him up instead. I bet you saw that coming. They're like, we're going to, oh, Paul, you're so dead. We're bringing you before Gallio, and you know what Gallio is like. He's a tough man. And they're like, and he goes, shut up, right? And then they beat the guy up. So what's the guy that's the new synagogue ruler's name? Okay, now try it with me, because this is going to become important in a moment. What is the new bad guy's name? What's the new bad guy's name? Okay, now there's five of you. Let's try all of you. What's the new bad guy's name? Yes, but Sosthenes just got beat. Okay, so it says in verse 18, Paul stayed a good while. Now, what you have at this point is old synagogue ruler, Crispus, and this guy, Justice, new church next door to the synagogue, the new synagogue ruler over here, Sosthenes, and he just got beat up trying to have Paul arrested. Okay, you with me so far? Now, here's what happens then. Paul then would ultimately go to Ephesus. As he goes to Ephesus, a new guy shows up in verse 24. We read a certain man named Apollos that was born in Alexandria, who was eloquent and mighty in scriptures, came to Ephesus. That's where Paul, and what happened is, this guy is super eloquent, he's super gifted, and he gets pulled aside by Priscilla and Aquila, and they say, hey, 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 you don't have the full information. They said, look, at, here he had half the message. He had, you're a sinner, you need to repent. But he didn't have the Jesus part. And there are people like that out there today. They're like, you're a sinner, you're wicked, you're horrible, repent. But even if you're repented, you can't turn around and run from hell because somebody has to pay for your sins. So these, this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, pull them aside and say, hey, 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 let's finish the story. See, the gospel is bad news, good news. It's not bad news, and that's it. The good news is Jesus died for you, for your sins, and then rose again. Are you following me on that? So what happens is, this Apollos now with this brand new information needs to, wants to leave Ephesus because he kind of left a group of people all messed up. And guess where he goes? He goes to Corinth. So when he goes to Corinth, he's now super mighty. He's a great looking guy, super gifted speaker. And people really seem to love this guy. And he's just got this brand new faith in Jesus. You, does that make sense? Okay, now this is where we're almost done to listen. So this is what happens. Paul then is going to go, and he, and he heads back to, and he winds up in Ephesus. And when Paul winds up in Ephesus, what will happen is, and this, by the way, it'll tell us in verse 8, it says, he went to the synagogue, spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading the kingdom of God. Some were hardened, but then Paul said he went to the place, and he taught daily in the school of Tyrannus, and he continued there for two and a half years. During this time, Paul's going to write this letter. It is now roughly somewhere about 54, 55 A.D., 
And Paul now is, now I'll show you where he is. Paul is, oh, <laughs> Paul is, he's right there somewhere in the inn. That makes sense. He is in Ephesus. Ephesus is the western coast of Turkey. And, the, and it's just right across from Athens. So follow me in this. Here's what we get. Paul planted the church. As he planted the church, spent, how long, does anyone remember how long he spent there? Yeah, a year and a half. Beautiful. As he was there for a year and a half, he planted the church, ultimately leaves. Another guy pops in there, and that guy's name was Apollos. Super great gifted speaker guy. Does that make sense? Now, during that time, who was the bad guy still that was over here? Sosthenes. Does that make sense? And there was other two guys. That's the Crispus, the synagogue ruler, the former one, and Justice, the guy whose house is next door, and they have the cool little church going on. Does that make sense? That's the situation, but something radical must have happened. You know why? Look at the first three verses with me of 1 Corinthians. Look who writes the letter. Paul, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and who? And what does he say about him? Our brother. Guess what just happened? Somewhere in all of this, Sosthenes got saved too. Something cool is going on in Corinth, isn't it? But not everything that's going on in Corinth is good. Here's the general letter and its lowdown. And here's my goal and my prayer as we get ready to pray now is that you'll get excited about reading the whole letter. It's not very long, and it's a very simple letter. It's the simplest, it's one of the simplest letters, even in structure. Listen to this simply. The first six chapters, Paul is addressing a problem. This is what it says, by the way, in chapter 1, and you can look at that with me in chapter 1, verse 11. It has been declared to me concerning you, my brothers, by those of, of Chloe's household. Somewhere in that, some girl named Chloe, and that's a girl's name, by the way, has reported that there's some problems in, going on in the church. It tells us, by the way, if you, go, if you flip to chapter 16, verse 17, it says this, I am glad about the coming of Stephanatus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, and they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. I get the guess here that these three guys came to Paul, because that's how he was refreshed, and what happened is they brought a letter from Chloe. Chloe says, man, our church is getting messed up. So they sent a letter to the church planner, Paul, and sent it through these three guys, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Does that make sense? So Paul received them. He reads this letter, and what he says is the first six chapters of this letter, he addresses the problem. And this is what he says in the simplest sense. And listen to this. He says this. He says in 1 Corinthians 3.1, I could speak to you as spiritual, but I can't speak to you as spiritual, but as carnal. It says in chapter 3, verse 3, you're still carnal. It says when there's envy, strife, divisions among you, aren't you carnal, behaving like mere men? Verse 4, it says, some say I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Remember the gifted speaker? Aren't you carnal? Paul says, you know what the biggest problem with you guys are? You're acting like you were before you were saved. Now, he never, though, questions whether they're saved. Though the church is messed up, he never questions whether they're saved. But what he says is, you all need to grow up. You are still carnal. Please hear me. What Hebrews is to the Jew, 1 Corinthians is to the Gentile. Stop not growing and grow up. Does that make sense? 
And there were four symptoms, by the way, of this being carnal. The first is in verse 11 when he says you're divided. Now what happens is division is, okay, all the white people over here, all the dark people over here, we'll put the Italians in the front, we'll get the Pentecostals in the back so they can make some noise, we'll get the, you know, the, the Anglicans up here with the robes. That's division. It's, I'm of Pastor Chuck. I'm of Pastor Tony. I was there for Brian Broderson. Or whatever it is. In the end of it all, it's like none of those people, would, including myself, would want that. Division is a sign of people who need to grow up in their faith. And what he'll tell us is, part of that is that you're full of selfish ambition. It's all about you. It's not about Christ. It's not about the church. It's about you. And that will create division. It'll be our church, but then there's the others. But, you know, they're believers, but they're not part of our church. Or it's your church, and that's their church. And it's, in the end of it, it's Christ's church, or it's no church at all. The second, in verse 20 of chapter 1, it tells us, is that the people are busy trying to look wise according to the world's standards. And by the way, that so happens today. It's like everything that we do, that sort of, we, we disguise it by making it seminaries. We disguise it by trying to make it apologetics. But in the end of it all, we're trying to look smart, and then we, we run from God's simple tools. And what happens is we talk smart about nothing. The third, by the way, and please hear me on this, is that a, a carnal church is a tolerant church to sin. When he talks in chapter 5, he'll say a man sleeping with his mother or his father's wife, stepmom at best. It's still horrible. But that isn't even the greatest problem. He says, and you guys are proud of it. You see, understand, this is what God called us to. He called us to tolerate each other by personality, but not tolerate sin. And a carnal church does the opposite. So what happens is we don't put up with people that are different from us. They might be a little harsh. They might be a little forthright. They might be, and we're not. Or they might not be, and we are. And we judge them on that. And he says, no, look it. That's the fourth of them. These people were actually going to court, suing each other. And what that says is we need the world to solve our problems, is what it says. And he goes, that's the sign of a carnal church. Christians don't sue each other. That's what he says. You'd be better off being wronged. So here it is again. Listen, you're divided. You're trying to look worldly wise. You are, you are tolerant of sin and you are intolerant of each other even to the point of going to court. He says, that looks like carnality to me. You just look like unbelievers in a church. That's the first six chapters. Let's deal with it. And he deals with it well. Chapter seven onward, he says, now concerning the things you wrote to me. In other words, there's a bunch of questions. When these three guys show up, they show up with a letter with questions. Hey, if Jesus is coming back, can we still get married? Well, what about meat given to idols? I mean, really, idols really aren't anything. Can we eat that meat or can we not eat that meat? What about women and their role in the church? What about that? What is communion really supposed to be like? What about spiritual gifts? What about speaking in tongues? Do we still do that in church or do we not do that in church? And if we do, what is it supposed to look like? Every one of those issues gets addressed. And I love how he addresses them. So if you will, first six chapters, Paul is being, if you will, sort of a policeman, correcting the problem. And then from seven on, He's being the answer man, the Bible answer man. And that's your whole letter. Now, it's this. Marrying meat, say marry, see, it's marrying meat, giving idols, men and women, spiritual gifts, love. And that spiritual gifts is chapter 12. Love is 13. Pra- spiritual practices within church is 14. 15 is giving, chapter 16, goodbye. That's your whole letter. So here's the deal. If this week you've just read it, I guarantee you the one thing that God would be trying to get through is let's all grow together. Let's grow up together. Let's stop just trying to make this about us. Let's stop trying to make this filled with selfish ambition. And by the way, I'm not saying that because I think any of you are. 
I'm saying because the Lord in this season has brought us to this letter to grow us up. And I guarantee you, things will be so simple, we're just going to have to deal with them. But it starts with this again. Just like Paul, just like these Corinthians, it starts with you meeting Jesus. That's it. It doesn't start with you getting religious. It doesn't start with you joining a church. It starts with this. So hear me as we prepare to pray. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? What is that, you might ask? If we all are sinners, as Apollos had the half of the message, we all have done wrong and a righteous judge would punish all wrong. You can choose to represent yourself in the eternal court of law, but if you do, you're guilty. But God so loved you, he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to die on the cross so that your sins could be properly punished without you. And he died on the cross to pay for them in full. And just like scripture promised, three days later, he rose again. The question is, what are you going to do with that? The part that God did, he paid your price. The part you do, you accept that gift. That's your part. By faith, you receive what he offers. My question to you is, why would you say no to that? As we pray now, I want to invite you to that. But I also want to invite you who have already said yes to Jesus. Are you willing to go on wherever he leads you? For Paul, by the way, churches would be planted all over the Middle East and Europe. Who knows what it'll be for you? It may be that you stay here and God just plants you gloriously here. It may be that he sends you somewhere. The question is, are you willing to go where he leads you? And when you, wherever you are, are you willing to grow there? In other words, are you willing to grow wherever you are and are you willing to go when he tells you? It's that simple. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful book. I thank you for for carrying me through, Lord, uh, this in a manner where it seems like it was relatively coherent, and I thank you for that. I thank you, Lord, for churches like this where it really is messed up, but you still love them, and you've never doubted for a moment your love for them. And I pray right now, Lord, for people right now who may be like Corinth, the church inside them, the temple that you've created them to be of you, is really messed up. It's carnal. It's still full of the world. And Lord, I know that the more we grow up, the more we look less like the world. And maybe for some of us, what we're trying to do is look more like the world and we're fighting your Holy Spirit who's trying to make us more like you. Lord, please, today, may we willingly allow you to do the masterpiece you designed us to be. And in that, Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful book and what you're going to teach us in it. As we dive into it next week, Lord, I just pray that we would be overwhelmed with your goodness and that every one of us will be challenged to grow in you. That there's never a point in our life where we stop growing. So Lord, as long as we're still breathing, school's in session. And so Lord, even today, for every believer here, I pray that we would grow as, you, as, you, as, um, as we're planted. And you've told us those who are planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of their God. So Lord, plant us and grow us. May we be willing to grow where you have us and go where you send us. Make that our life, Lord. And if there be anybody in here today who is not sure or sure they haven't accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, and right now you have a decision to make. Will you say yes to this gift? You may not understand everything, but do you understand that there is a God who wants you and he wants a relationship with you 
And he sent his son to die on the cross to pay your penalty. So that the only thing that would keep you from him is your choice. But today, why would you say no to a God who loves you and wants you, who created you to be with him? And today, he calls to you and says, come to me. And if you were to say, even as Paul did, who are you and what do you want me to do? I am sure he would make that clear. And he would say, say yes to my gift. I am your God. And if that's you, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I believe, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let this prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here it is. God, I confess to you, I am a sinner. And I know my sin separates me from you. But I believe that you so loved me that you sent Jesus to die on the cross so that all of my guilt could be punished without having to punish me, even though I deserve it. And he died on the cross for all of my wrong, was buried, and just as you promised, three days later he rose again. So I say yes to Jesus confessing him as my Savior and as my Lord, I surrender to you now. Have me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you agree, I ask you to say, amen.